Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, let me invite you once again to turn to the book of Genesis. And this morning, we'll look at the fifth chapter, Genesis and chapter 5. And we're going to look at the entirety of the chapter, Genesis 5, verses 1 through 32. And so let me invite you, as you're able, let's stand in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's Word. Again, we're looking at Genesis 5, beginning in verse 1, wherein Moses faithfully records, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were eight hundred years and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years and he died. And Seth lived an hundred and five years and begat Enos. And Seth lived after he begat Enos 807 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. And Enos lived 90 years and begat Canaan. And Enos lived after he begat Canaan 815 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enos were 905 years, and he died. And Canaan lived 70 years and begat Mahal-Alil. And Canaan lived after he begat Mahal-Alil 840 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. And Mahal-Alil lived 60 and 5 years and begat Jared. And Mahalalil lived after he begat Jared 830 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Mahalalil were 890 and five years, and he died. And Jared lived 162 years, and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch 800 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 960 and two years, and he died. And Enoch lived 60 and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Methuselah lived an hundred and eighty and seven years and begat Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech seven hundred eighty and two years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were nine hundred sixty and nine years, and he died. And Lamech lived a hundred and eighty and two years and begat a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has, hath cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah five hundred ninety and five years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were 770 and seven years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old. And Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of his word. And let us join again in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for thy word, for the God-breathed scriptures, the scriptures that have been kept by thy providence, uh, 
translated for us today in a language we can understand as we have a right unto it as thy people, given that thou hast commanded to us to search the scriptures. Give us illumination today. Give us light so that by thy light we might see light. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing today our exposition of the book of Genesis. And what have we seen thus far? Thus far we have seen that God made the world in the space of six days and all very good, that on the seventh day he rested. He made on the sixth day man as the crown of creation. And then we saw in Genesis 3 how Adam and Eve fell that they sinned against God, they ate the forbidden fruit, and thereby they broke what we could call the first table of the law. They broke the, the, the right duties toward God to obey his word. And then from that point forward, from Genesis 3 forward, mankind and all creation is under the displeasure of God, under a curse. Man was not living after Genesis 3, in a state of innocence any longer, but in a fallen state. Part of that curse was an enmity that is described in Genesis 3.15 between the seed of the serpent, not merely that creature, but the devil who had used the, the creature, the serpent, as an instrument in his hand, an enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, with the promise in Genesis 3.15 that we sometimes call the first preaching of the gospel, that there would come a time when from the seed of woman, one would come who would bruise the serpent's head while the serpent would bruise his heel. And then in Genesis 4, we saw that the fall continued. It grew graver still. And Cain the, the son of Adam and Eve rose up and slew his brother, righteous Abel, thereby breaking the second table of the law by sinning against his brother. And so both the vertical relationship with God, the horizontal relationship between man and man was falling under the ravages of sin. And Cain had to suffer the consequences of his sin. In pain and despair, he cried out in Genesis 4.13, My punishment is greater than I can bear. And he was cast out even further than Adam and Eve had been pushed out. We're told in Genesis 4.16 that he had to go further from the presence of the Lord and go to the land of Nod, the land of wandering uh, east of Eden. And then at the end of Genesis 4, we saw last time uh, two lines that were traced. One was the line of Cain, representing the, the seed of the serpent. Uh, because as 1 John 3.12 tells us, Cain was, was of the evil one, of the wicked one. And on the other hand, we also saw at the end of Genesis 4, the line that would come through Seth, the son who was born, was appointed as a replacement for righteous Abel. And so we saw two, two lines of descent, the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Well, when we come to Genesis 5 now, we are going to find a more formal, extended, and detailed account of the line or the generations of Adam through the line of Seth. I was talking to somebody back in the fellowship hall before the service, and I said, this is one of those passages today. There's probably not a single person's life verse in this passage. Maybe the you know Enoch walked with God and was not for God took him. Um, th th this is a passage that uh, someone might refer to as flyover country. Uh, this is the point at which people have been reading Genesis. They might skip a bit forward. But this is part of Scripture. And 
There is gold, there is treasure to be mined even in a list of descent of those who come through the line of Adam. And so uh, we will notice as we look at Genesis 5 that it is going to list for us some 10 generations. And it's going to get the line of Adam through Seth that will lead us to Noah. So it's going to begin with Adam and it will end with Noah. One commentator said the entire genealogy then serves to link two great events in the history of humanity, the creation and the flood. And so this is going to take us from from Adam. It's going to take us to Noah. And then the days to come, we will have an opportunity to look at the account of the flood. What we are shown in this chapter is the faithfulness of God to mankind, even when they have been unfaithful. As Paul will put it in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we believe not or if we are faithless, some modern translations put it, yet he, God, abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. And we are also shown how God is working out his providential plan of salvation through his Messiah throughout all the circumstances of history. And his promises never fail. That promise in Genesis 3.15 will not fail. Let's turn now and let's look at our passage. We can divide this text into three parts. The first part is the opening two verses. This provides a kind of a title, an introduction to the book of the generations of Adam. The second part, verses 3 through 24, is the initial listing of these 10 generations. It's the listing of the first seven generations from Adam through Seth to Enoch. And then the third part of our text, verses 25 through 32, will list the last several uh, links in this chain, in this genealogy from Methuselah to Noah. And so let's walk through this, these three parts of our passage together and see what we, what we might be able to learn from it. So we begin with uh, verses 1 and 2, the first part, which is the introduction to this book of the generations of Adam. And so, as I said, it sort of serves as the title. And there we have a title right in the beginning. Look at verse 1 of Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, the use of the word book indicates that this was a record, a written record. And it's likely that that Moses had access to this as a source, as he's recording, faithfully recording this line uh, from Adam uh, to Noah. And there is uh, made use of here what some would call a formula. This is the way the ancient Hebrews would introduce such a listing of the generations. And in fact, this is a, this is a, a formulaic introduction that appears throughout the book of Genesis. If you just flow for just a couple of moments, if you look at Genesis uh, chapter 6 and verse 9, it starts, these are the generations of Noah. So there will, will there, where there will be listings like this of, of descent. It's uses the same kind of language. Look at chapter 10 of Genesis, verse 1. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, look in Genesis 10 uh, as well, or Genesis 11 rather, and verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. And likewise in Genesis 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Look in Genesis chapter 25 and look at verse uh, 12. There you'll see another one of these uh, uh, formulaic introductions. Now these are the generations of Ishmael. And then related to that, if you're going to trace the line of Ishmael, Uh, You you need also verse 19. And these are the generations of Isaac. 
And so uh, this continues. Look at chapter 36 of Genesis and verse 1. Genesis 36 and verse 1, which begins, Now these are the generations of Esau. And likewise, if you're going to have Esau, look at verse 9 of Genesis 36. And these are the generations of Esau again. And then look at chapter 37, verse 2. And now these are the generations of Jacob. So uh, this is a common thing uh, in the book of Genesis. This is the way you introduce these listing of names. And so here it commences telling us this line from Adam uh, to Noah. And then uh, after he's given us this title, telling us what we should expect, he takes us back and has us recall the creation narrative. Maybe much as uh, a preacher will summarize what he's preached about previously before he begins, begins the next message in the series. Moses reminds the hearers of the creation. So look at verse 1 of Genesis 5. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. And this is echoing in particular what had been stated all the way back in Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And I think that Moses was guided by the Holy Spirit to, to write this at this point in order to convey a reminder that although man has fallen into sin, man is still a special creation of God. And man, even fallen man, is still made in God's likeness, although the image of God has been tarnished and damaged by sin, man remains a unique creature who still holds a special place and a special role within creation. Thank the Lord. The image and likeness of God was not obliterated in man by the fall. Even in man's fallen state, he still possesses something that makes him different. Something that makes him different from a plant, a tree, a dog, a cat, a horse, a cow. There's something different about a human being. Even in our fallen state, we have a dignity within us that comes by virtue of the fact that we were made in God's image and in his likeness. This is shown to us also by later statements in Scripture. In Genesis 9, after the, after the flood, and verse 6, God gives a command to, to Noah, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. That's a prohibition is taking a man's life because men's life are valuable because they're made in the image of God. And that's said after the fall and after the flood. Likewise, in the New Testament, in James 3.9, James says, talking about the dangers of the tongue, he says, therewith, with the tongue, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. And he's saying, we shouldn't use our tongues to speak maliciously, evilly, about a fellow human being because that person was made in the similitude of God. And that hasn't been done away with in our fallen state. In his earlier commentary on Genesis 1.26, Calvin wrote, For besides the deformity, which everywhere appears unsightly, this evil is added that no part of man is free from the infection of sin. We still have the image of God, but it's been tarnished and sin has uh, invaded every aspect of our lives. This is what we mean by with tulip when we talk about total or radical depravity. And yet the image is still there. 
Likewise, going back to Genesis 5 and verse 2, Moses continues by reiterating, reiterating further some things that have been said in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Most particularly, we see in Genesis 5, 2, he, after he talks about man being made in God's image, he says, male and female created he them. This tells us that the fall of man into sin has not obliterated the original good basic design of creation for mankind to exist in two types or two styles, male and female. And again, this echoes what we read in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And that hasn't changed in a fallen world. There's still only two genders. There's male and female. Even in a fallen world, this is what Moses is affirming. And then if you're in Genesis 5 and you look at the second half of verse 2, it says, and God blessed them and God blessed them. And again, even in a fallen state, God is still blessing mankind. Even though men have fallen, even though they have disobeyed God, even though they have sinned against their fellow man, God still has an open hand to bless sinful men. Praise the Lord that he still blesses even sinful men. He continues, uh, Moses uh, does, and he says, and God called their name Adam. And uh, here he's referring to the fact that God called uh, the first human beings and then all those descended from them. Here it says the AV, the name Adam. The name Adam means mankind. He called them mankind. Again, they still bear a certain degree of dignity even though they're in the fallen state. And then it ends. It's inter- interesting. If you look at this, um, it, literarily, uh, it is started in chapter 5, verse 1, in the day that God created man. And how does it end then in verse 2? In the day when they were created. And it sort of serves a little inclusio, encompassing this little introduction that we have telling us that uh, as Moses is about to trace the line through Adam, that God has not abandoned sinful mankind. They're still made in his image. They're still male and female. They're still can be blessed by God. They still are named by God to be his, the crown of his creation and still have a place of dominion, a, a place of service uh, in his creation. The second part of our text, the longest part, is verses 3 through 24. And now he commences the, the, the book of the generations of Adam proper as he's going to list the line through seven generations from Adam to Enoch. And um, it's going to make sense, I think, to have our division here at at verse 24 with Enoch because we'll see when we get to Enoch, there's going to be something about him. There's going to be something about his experience as the seventh from Adam that will be unique compared to those who had come before him. And as you read through this, um, it just seems like a boring list, right? But if you'll, if, you'll, if you'll look at it for a second, you'll see a very intentional and particular pattern. You'll see that Moses lists the name of a person in the line. He then gives the age of that man when he fathered his first child along with the name of that child. And then he proceeds to tell us how many more years this person lived after the birth of his son. And then he reports his final age. And then he records that this person died. You'll see it repeated over and over again. And he died. 
And so uh, let's begin by looking at the first person in this list, which is a description of Adam himself, the first man. And so it says in verse 3, And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. So uh, we start with Adam, and this is significant. This is, the, this is the first man. And what we're being told by virtue of the fact that, that, that Adam, uh, can you imagine becoming a father at, at 130 uh, bearing uh, your third son at 130, but this is what happened to Adam. But what, what this tells us is we know that even after the fall, already Cain and Abel had been conceived and born. But this tells us after the breaking of the, of the first table of the law, the sin against God, and now after the breaking of the second table of the law, after, after man's sin against man and Cain's rising up to, to, to slay uh, his brother Abel, that God still allows the generative capacity of, of man that has been given him to continue. And so man had been given this. And, and so, so Adam, it, he could have been cut off. He could have not been allowed. After all the troubles that mankind had brought so early, uh, mankind might have been snuffed out, we might say, in the cradle. But God allows uh, human beings to continue to, to exist and to, to exercise this generative capacity given to them. And, and, and we note especially that, it, that when it describes uh, Adam's uh, bringing forth this son, Seth, that he begets him in his own likeness and after his own image. And this, of course, is echoing the creative work of God himself. When a man uh, produces uh, an offspring, he gives to that man some of his own likeness and some of his own image. One of the things that's interesting about this, though, when it describes God's work of creating the first man, uh, it, it starts off talking about the image and then talks about the likeness. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Here, with the description of Adam's begetting of his son, uh, it first talks about the likeness and then about the image. And there have been some interpreters who suggested that this is a subtle indicator that the nature that Adam conveys to his son is now twisted, frail, mortal, and miserable. We have in this the notion of the sin nature being conveyed by ordinary generation from man to son, from one generation to another. This is the beginning of the theology of the inherited sin nature, if it wasn't already evident in Cain and Abel. And so we can say that beginning here as it's described uh, in the transfer from Adam to Seth, it's made plain to us that man inherits a sin nature by what we call ordinary generation. We also call this original sin. It's been said we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. Our sin problem is not merely the actual transgressions that we commit. It's that we are conceived and born with a sin nature, a tendency towards sin. One commentary I was reading cited a theologian who wrote, Our first parents are the proximate cause of the original blemish from whose impure nature the original stain flowed into our hearts. Everything follows the seed of its nature. No black crow ever produced a white dove, nor does a ferocious lion beget a gentle lamb. And no man polluted with inborn sin ever begets a holy child. Adam, fallen Adam, produces Seth in his own likeness and in his own image. We've talked before about Seth because there was a 
preliminary introduction of him in the line of, of Seth back in, in the previous chapter in the final two verses of Genesis 4. And I noted there at that time that Seth, the name Seth means appointed. And so Seth had been appointed to take the place of righteous Abel. Now Moses is going to continue, if you look at verse 4, following this pattern. And he says, And the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And so the life of Adam continued for some 800 years after he had uh, after he had brought about the after he had begotten this, his son Seth, and then we're told there in verse four that he also had many other sons and daughters. You're going to see that repeated throughout this this uh, line of descent as well. And again, uh, this is when humanity was closer to the original creation. And I think human beings at this time probably had a a super abundance of this generative capacity. And so this served God's providential purposes as the, as the population of human beings expanded and increased even in their fallen state. They were being fruitful and multiplying. And then finally, uh, we're told with respect to Adam, again, that in verse 5, and all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. So we're told that Adam had Seth when he was 130, lives 800 more years, and he lived 930 years. Now, as we'll see, as you probably already noticed as I've read through this, the years of the lifespans of these men in the early days of Adam's line, including Adam himself, are very long. We would hardly think it possible someone could live 930 years. And there have been people who have gone to the Old Testament and they've tried to apply naturalistic explanations. A lot of times people have said, well, uh, maybe you've heard this. They, they kept numbers in different ways in those days. And these numbers here are not to be taken. Literally, they're, they're, they're simply a figurative or they were calculating the age in a different way. One commentator I read suggested possibly natural conditions on the earth were different in the pre-flood times. Elements such as climate and weather may have affected mankind's longevity. In the end, though, it seems to me that the most plausible explanation is simply that men who lived closer to the time of the pre-fallen state of man men who lived closer to the age of innocence had a capacity to live longer and the further and the more generations out and the more there was the, uh, the, the, the accumulation of all the negative impacts of sin and the fall that it began radically to shorten the days of men's lives. And there's a sense in which we might think that if, if it had continued apace, that, that perhaps you know, men would have started to die in their 60s and 50s and 40s and 30s and 20s, and there might have come a time when uh, men would have, the last man would have simply died in his infancy, and there would be no more of mankind. But it seems, when we look at the Scriptures, that God, in His mercy, at a certain point, determined to arrest the downward cycle. And so that by the recording of Psalm 90 and verse 10, we seem to have something that was set long ago. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. And so at some point the Lord sovereignly put a limit on the downward cycle, the downward descent. The early men lived longer lives and they were also able to conceive children at a much older age. The last line in the description of Adam 
as I've already noted, is one that's going to be repeated over and over. It's a simple statement, and he died. This is, this is Adam's obituary. And he died. This, of course, fulfilled the consequences of sin. This, this fulfilled God's word. If you go back and look at Genesis 3.19, Adam was told after the fall, for dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return. How shocked and surprised Adam might have been after he had existed in the state of innocence and his body had been strong and had no weakness in it. Then how how, uh, surprised he might have been as he grew older and began to see his body begin, begin to weaken and maybe his hair fall out and uh, maybe to begin to have aches and pains in his body that he didn't have before and begin to have weaknesses. And uh, it took him a lot longer, but he came to some of the same conclusions that all of us will come to if we are allowed in God's providence to live long enough. Uh, he came to understand his, his frailty, and in the end, he died. As the Apostle Paul will put it in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. I was talking with someone recently, and they said, why do people die? And I said, well, it's because of sin. Paul said the wages of sin is death, but there's a second part of that, but The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're reminded in that simple statement that's repeated over and over and over through this, that that, that statement, and he died. We're reminded of the inevitability of death, not just for Adam, but for us. As the saying from the poet John Donne tells us, ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. We will all go the way of all flesh. And one day, if the Lord tarries, our funerals will be held. Our funeral will be announced and the bell will toll uh, for people to come and remember our brief lives. Well, we move on now, verses 6 through 8, to Seth. The life of Seth. We're told in verse 6 that Seth lived 105 years and he begat Enos or Enosh, as it says in some translations. And it says in verse 7, and Seth lived after he begat Enosh 807 years and he begat sons and daughters. And then verse 8, and all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. And so uh, the same process goes on. And then verses 9 through 11, there is Enos or Enosh. He lived 90 years and begat, I pronounce it Canaan, it could be Cainan. It's not Canaan like the land of Canaan, but that was the name of this man. And we're told in verse 10, and Enos lived after he begat Canaan 815 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enos were 905 years and he died. Andy died, Andy died, Andy died is repeated over and over and over. Then verses 12 through 14, we have the fourth man in this line from Adam, which is Canaan or Cainan. And Canaan lived 70 years and begat Mahal Alil. And, and Canaan lived after he begat Mahal Alil 840 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. Uh, so again, you read through it quickly, you don't realize perhaps the pattern is just being replete, repeated. He, he begat sons and daughters, and he died. He built his empire, and he died. And again, it's, it's, it's repeated so many times, it's a reminder, again, what is there for all of us. Uh, if we look at verses 15 through 17, we have the fifth person who shows up in this line who has uh, the name that's perhaps less uh, uh, familiar to us as we see in verse 15 Mahal Alil some have suggested that the name of this man means the shining one of God and Mahal Alil lived after 
uh, lived 60 and five years and begat Jared. And Mahalalil lived after he begat Jared 830 years and begat sons and daughters. Verse 17, and all the days of Mahalalil were 890 and five years and he died. The sixth in line then in verses 18 through 20 is Jared. And it's thought that this name, which we do hear more often, means he descends or a descendant. And so it's actually, a, that's a, quite a good name, isn't it? Uh, to give a son, to call him Jared. He has descended from me. He has received, he's been made in my, in my likeness and image. And so uh, here in uh, verse 18, we read, And Jared lived 162 years, and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch 800 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. So uh, we have this uh, man, Jared, and this brings us now to the seventh. And this one is going to be different. This is going to break some of the patterns. And so this is telling us, pay attention. This, This one is going to be special. And so we begin in verse 21 with this man named Enoch. And Enoch lived 60 and five years and begat Methuselah. And you may recall that in the line of Cain, that his first son also had this same name. And these are two different people. There was a son who was born to Cain, and he was called Enoch. If you look back at Genesis 4 and verse 17, it says, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So he he had a son named Enoch called the town Enochville or Enoch City or whatever. But this is is someone else. There was an Enoch in the line of Cain, but now there is an Enoch uh, who is in the line of Seth. And you may recall that the name Enoch means dedication or consecration. This Enoch is actually a man that we learn from Jewish tradition, who was a prophet of God, a minister of God. And in fact, if you look at the book of Jude in the New Testament, there is reference to him and there is actually a quotation of a prophecy from him. If you look at the book of Jude, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 in the New Testament, it says, and Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Enoch was a godly man and who was even quoted in the New Testament. The distinctive things about Enoch begin to be noted in verse 22, as it says, And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And here is... a a description of one in Adam's line that we have not heard before. And it's the description that Enoch was a man who walked with God. He didn't simply live an extra 300 years, but he was walking with God. And it also says of him, as it says of all in this line, that he, he begat sons and daughters. I thought it was interesting. I looked at the commentary of the Puritan Matthew Poole and he has an interesting note on Enoch having sons and daughters. He says, Hence it is undeniably evident that the state and use of holy matrimony doth very well agree with the severest course of holiness and with the office of a prophet or preacher. And Poole was saying, Enoch was God's servant and He had a wife and he had sons and daughters. So Roman Catholic Church, 
your celibate priest idea doesn't wash with scripture. And you can be a godly man and be a family man and have a wife and have children. You don't need to go off to a monastery. You don't need to take yourself out of the world. But in fact, you can develop your holiness while you live within the world. And then it continues. Uh, Look in verse 23. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. But what's, what's missing? The and he died. Because it's explained in verse 24. And Enoch walked with God. And he was not. For God took him. The language of walking with God is figurative. For one who shares an intimate communion and harmony with God. Enoch was a peculiarly godly man in ungodly times. He was a spiritual giant among the men of his times. Although we would have to understand that he had remaining corruptions within him. He was a fallen man. And yet he was a godly man. Matthew Henry explains that to walk with God means to set God before us and to act as if he were all, we were always under his eye. It is to make God's word our rule and his glory our end in all our actions. It is to make it our constant care and endeavor in everything to please God and in nothing to offend him. And this was apparently true of Enoch. The meaning of what happened to Enoch, that he walked with God and was not for God took him, is explained to us in the New Testament. It's another example of a place where there's something in the Old Testament that is explained by something in the New Testament. What is in the Old Testament concealed is in the New Testament revealed. And if you look at what is called the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11 and verse 5, we have explained to us what happened to Enoch. Hebrews 11:5 reads, By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Enoch was thus one of two men mentioned in the Old Testament who did not taste death but were taken by God before experiencing the pains and terrors of death. The case of one not experiencing death is sometimes called by theologians apotheosis. And again, there are only two cases of this. One was Enoch. The second was the prophet Elijah. And we read in 2 Kings 2, 11 and 12, And it came to pass as they still went on and talked that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, And parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it. And he cried, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took all of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. So Enoch was the first Elijah later of men who did not taste death. And Enoch so stands out within this list. This inspired list in this seventh place, this this place of perfection as a man who walked with God and was not for God took him. Let's look briefly at the last uh, part, the last couple of verses here. We have here the mention of Methuselah, the, the, the son of righteous Enoch. And perhaps it's no surprise that we read about Methuselah He is the man listed in the scriptures who lived the longest number of years. He lived 969 years, according to verse 27. Well, when you come from godly Enoch, there are blessings perhaps that accrue to you. And perhaps then it's no surprise that Methuselah has the longest recorded life. And there's perhaps an underlying subtext to us men that the way we live our lives will affect the longevity and the wellness of those who come behind us. There is then uh, listed for us after uh, Methuselah, the begetting of uh, Lamech or Lamech. 
And again, we should not confuse this man with the man who was the seventh from the line of Cain. Just as there was an Enoch in the line of Cain that is not the Enoch in the line of Seth, there is, an, there is a Lamech in the line of Seth that's not the Lamech who is listed at the end of Genesis 4, the man who had two wives, the man who was a murderer and swore vengeance on any, anyone who would do any damage to him. And we're told then in verse 29 that Lamech had a son. His name was Noah. And now we're, we're at the 10th generation, end point here. And it says, and he called the name of his son Noah. And the name Noah means rest. Saying, this same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord God hath cursed. So somehow Lamech, living under the curse of God because of sin, realized that his son Noah would be one through whom there would be rest, and that rest would come through the chastening hand of God, through the flood. But there would be a correction to sin. There would be a, there would be a hemming of it in that would come through the ministry of Noah. And it says, Lamech, verse 30, lived after he begat Noah 590 and five years and begat sons and daughters. All the days of Lamech were 770 and seven years. That's interesting because how long did Lamech live? 770 years, but 777 years. And although this is not the same Lamech, there is a providential connection because you remember evil, wicked Lamech from the line of Cain had wanted to... to to exact vengeance of 70 and sevenfold upon his enemies. And so the Lord, I think, put that, had measured providentially the, the number of days of this Lamech from the line of Seth. And then we come to the conclusion, verse 32, and Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat, not just one son is mentioned, but Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it doesn't complete the story. It doesn't tell us the rest of the days because that's going to be unfolded for us in the chapters to come. But it's also prefigured here for us that Noah and his three sons and their wives, that these eight persons would be the persons through which the Lord would, as it were, renew uh, after the flood and begin again the path of mankind. And so uh, we have walked through this book of the generations of Adam. I don't know if anybody found a life verse in this. I'm guessing maybe not, but it's scripture. And there is gold in here. Let me, let me see if I can just draw two lessons that, I, that we might share from this passage. Two spiritual lessons. One of those lessons is in this list, in this book of the generations of Adam, we are reminded of the fact that all humanity comes from the line of Adam. And after the the flood, since only the line of Seth is going to be preserved, we come through this line. The line of of Cain will be cut off. And we're reminded, though, that we, like Seth and all who have come after him, that we have received the fallen likeness and the fallen image of Adam. We have inherited a fallen nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve, that is commonly called original sin. And so what David says in the Psalms, in Psalm 51.5, when he says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or in Psalm 58, 3, when it says the wicked are estranged from the womb, they go astray as soon as they be born speaking lies. We can say this is a description of me. I have received a sin nature, then I have committed my own actual transgressions. The Apostle Paul will describe man's state in his descent from Adam in Romans 5, verse 17, when he writes, For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, 
Much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And so Paul lays out for us this great truth. Some of you remember some years back, I bet Carol remembers, we had a Keech conference a long time back. And one of our speakers was a, a, a brother from Scotland. And he was talking about our sin natures. And he said, it's as though we were a car and we're, we're, we've, been, we've been coupled to Adam. And Adam is the engine that drives the train that we're on. And we're, we're on this train driven by Adam and it's heading for a cliff. And we're going to plunge over that cliff. We, 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 we're, we're being driven by his life. By, through his fall, we send all and we're heading rightly off a cliff. And he said, our only hope is to be uncoupled from Adam and coupled to the life of Christ. And Christ is the engine that then pulls us, not towards that cliff and death, but who pulls us toward life. And that's what being a Christian is. It's, it's having your life disconnected from Adam and having it connected to Christ. Second point we can draw. Even if our lives are connected to Christ, we still have the remaining corruptions that we had when we were, when we were, when we were connected to Adam in this life. But what this passage tells us in Enoch is that even though we have these remaining corruption, we still may seek holiness of life. And we still may have communion with God. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul often describes the Christian life using the metaphor of walking. So in Romans 6, 4, he says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. In Galatians 5.25, Paul writes, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Colossians 2.6, As ye have therefore received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk ye in him. If you've received Christ, walk in him. We may not be taken by God as Enoch and Elijah were, but if we walk with God, we know that even in death, we will not be separated from him, but we, but we will be with him and have eternal life. There likely will be an and he died epitaph. Some of you now maybe want to write that on your tombstone. And he died. But we know also that if our lives have been joined to Christ, there should be added to and he died, but he lives but he lives in Christ. As one saying that's found in a, outside of a church in Greece reads, if you die before you die, then when you die, you will not die. If you die to yourself and become alive to Christ before you die, then when you die, you won't die. Amen? We invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for thy word and for even the, the parts that we might quickly skip over. 
Uh, we know that with further examination, there is, there is something to be learned. Help us to learn more about ourselves, about our state, our fallen state, but also about the hope that is there for us in the one who lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was raised for our justification. Help us to walk in newness of life in him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.